Welcome to the Democracy Dispatch podcast. I'm Justin Marsh, Political Outreach Director at Vermont Conservation Voters. This is your weekly scoop on legislative action as we work to push forward environmental policies for Vermont. Each Monday, we will take a look back at the week prior, preview the week ahead, speak with legislators and advocates on topics affecting our air, water, open space, and quality of life. On today's episode, Lauren chats with Senator Ruth Hardy of Addison County for our deep dive conversation about ranked choice voting and the PFAS and toxics bill. Later on, I speak with the House Progressive Caucus Leader, Representative Emma Mulvaney-Stanick for our conversation about legislative pay, as well as some of her party's initiatives this biennium. But first, I'm joined now by Lauren Hurl, Executive Director of Vermont Conservation Voters, for the session shakedown segment where we recap the week prior and look to this coming week of the session. The Senate moved quickly on action around the Affordable Heat Act last week after the House approved it. What is the scoop on S5? Yeah, the Senate uh, decided to concur with the House version of the Affordable Heat Act, which means they basically just accepted the changes that the House had made. And so now it goes right to the governor. And um, so we'll be continuing to work uh, knowing that the governor has indicated very strongly that he plans to veto this bill. That means that the bill will then come back to the legislature and they have the opportunity to override the veto. Uh, So in order for that to happen, we would need 20 votes in the Senate and 100 votes in the House. So we'll be working really hard to line up those votes and see if we can get this this bill into law this year. Yeah. Is the timeline setting it up that uh, potentially a veto, veto override could happen before they adjourn? It's possible. I think, you know, everything would need to move on the calendar as efficiently as possible. <laughs> so there, there's a chance that could happen. And otherwise, um, our understanding is the legislature is planning to come back in mid to late June for a veto override session, uh, knowing that there's a number of bills that we anticipate the governor will likely veto. So, um, so yeah, stay tuned on the timing. We'll see. <laughs> Got it. Um, The Senate also continued their work on House bills that were sent over to them at crossover, including H-158, the modernized bottle bill, and H-126, otherwise known as 30 by 30. What progress was made last week on those two bills and anywhere, any progress for this week? Both of those bills have now passed with strong votes out of the Senate Natural Resources and Energy Committee and have been sent to uh, money committees. So... The updated bottle bill is currently sitting in the Senate Finance Committee um, and hoping for a vote on that soon. And the 30 by 30 biodiversity bill is currently in the Senate Appropriations Committee and um, again, hoping to see action on that soon. Uh, Both of those bills, there were relatively modest changes in the Senate. So we're hoping those will move forward, um, get strong votes, and then that the House would hopefully just adopt those changes and move forward and get them sent off to the governor. Awesome. And over on the House side, the Committee on Environment and Energy has been working diligently on S-100, the housing bill. Uh, What is the latest there? Yeah, the committee has been, you know, working through all of the many uh, aspects of the bill. So hearing a variety of perspectives and, you know, really honing in on what changes that they want to make. We are anticipating that they will move that bill relatively soon. Um, It then does need to go to 
the Ways and Means and Appropriations Committees. So um, still has a bit of a, a path <laughs> to follow. Um, but, you know, this is obviously a huge priority of the legislature. So we're anticipating that that will kind of keep moving at a, a relatively quick pace through the process. And once we see where the House Environment and Energy Committee has kind of landed, we can give a more detailed update on what the what the core provisions are of, you know, what's made it through that uh, that key committee. Fantastic. And you had the opportunity to chat with Senator Ruth Hardy of the Addison District, who chairs the Senate Government Operations Committee and sits on the Health and Welfare Committee. You touched base on the PFAS and toxics bill, as well as ranked choice voting and legislative pay. Let's hear that conversation now. Very excited to be joined today by Senator Ruth Hardy from Addison County, and I have had the pleasure of working with Senator Hardy before she was a senator even, uh, when she was running Emerge Vermont, a really critical partner and player in recruiting amazing uh, women to run for office. And now she is the chair of the Senate Committee on Government Operations and also serves on the Health and Welfare Committee. And both committees have been working on really important VCV priority issues. So thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, you're welcome. It's great to be here, Lauren. Thank you. Great. So Senator Hardy, can you give us a quick update on ranked choice voting? Can you remind us just what that bill does which your committee passed out, and what you anticipate uh, on that bill in the final weeks of the session. Yeah, thanks. Um, so the Ranked Choice Voting Bill, S-32, is in the House Government Operations Committee, and I hope they will vote it out next week with very few changes to what we did. Um, in the Senate, we uh, created sort of a three-tiered bill that starts with the ability of local towns to opt into a ranked choice voting um, uh, for their for their local elections, for municipal elections, for select board, mayor, that kind of thing. And ranked choice voting is really a system where you can say, this is my first choice candidate, my second choice, my third choice, my fourth choice. And all of your vote, your vote will matter no matter who um, is the top candidate, the second candidate, third candidate, fourth candidate. So there are no wasted votes in ranked choice voting. It's also a voting system that really um, tries to uh, do away with um, the really divided partisan bickering that we're seeing at the national level. So it creates a much less divisive um, campaign for um, elected office. And so that's one of the things that we think it's really good for our democracy, um, for voters to have more choice and more say and to have not, not have wasted votes. So it creates the municipal option and then a study um, committee that would work toward um, uh, using ranked choice voting in the 2026 elections statewide. Um, so for the statewide offices in 2026, it could be federal or state offices at that point. And then moving toward ranked choice voting for the presidential primary election in 2028. Um, so really just this tiered um, uh, phased in use of ranked choice voting starting possibly next year with municipal, municipal elections if towns want to do it. So um, we're really excited about it. And as one of my colleagues, um, Senator Vihoski said, it's easy as ice cream. Um, we got to sample ice cream and, and rank our favorite ice cream. And so uh, that's uh, what we we think it's as easy and as fun as ice cream. 
Excellent. Well, we're excited to see the progress. Always good when something can be as, as fun and easy as ice cream. Yeah. <laughs> Not always the case at the state house. So that's great. That's um, excellent. Well, excited to see the progress of that bill and appreciate all your efforts leading on that. Um, another VCV priority was the bill to ban PFAS and other toxic chemicals from cosmetics, menstrual products, textiles, and turf. And your other committee worked on that bill, and you've always been a really strong supporter of um, legislation to better protect people from toxic chemicals. So just wanted to get your reflections on how that bill went in the Senate and what you hope to see next for it. Yeah, that's great. I mean, that was a really important bill that um, Senate Health and Welfare did. And what what really struck me, as I, I think I've mentioned to you before, Lauren, is that we have come so far on this issue. We had a unanimous tripartisan vote on the Senate floor on that bill. We had a unanimous vote in our committee with two Republicans and three Democrats voting for it. And it is really an issue that everybody sees the impact of toxic chemicals on our everyday lives. And everybody knows somebody who's been impacted, who's gotten cancer or some other um, really horrible health effect because of PFAS and other toxic chemicals. So I think it's really in the mainstream now in Vermont that we we know it's important to keep these out of the products that we use every day. And the other thing about that bill that was really striking to me is that a lot of the products that we were talking about were products that are specific to women's health and hygiene, um, menstrual products and um, um, uh, health and beauty aids, unfortunately, are used more for by women than men at this point. And I think that it was really striking to make sure that we are keeping women safe and not having our bodies impacted by toxic chemicals. Um, and then also, you know, outdoor gear and, and um, turf that everybody uses. And um, I just hope that we move forward and broaden out to start being able to look at these toxic chemicals by class and not do these one-offs for each individual type of product. But I, I'm just really thrilled at how far we've come, even in just the five years I've been here in the Senate, that this has really evolved to a thing that we all really agree on is important and that we need to move forward with banning these toxic chemicals. Yeah, that's great. It's so true. We used to spend so much time having worked on these issues for more than a decade, just trying to make the case that these things were actually toxic and there were actually harms and the conversation has shifted so much. So that's such good points you're making. Yeah. Um, it's giving optimism that we can do more and look at exactly. the issues more broadly. It's great. Um Excellent. So that bill is now in the House Human Services Committee, and we're hoping that they're going to start the conversation on that bill um, soon. So we're going to keep pushing for that. Uh, oh, yeah. Time is getting short, but um, but keep pushing for, for action on that if we can. Um, and then finally, uh, our next guest on the podcast is going to be speaking uh, a bit more about legislation to update and improve legislative pay and benefits. And we think this is a really critical issue to make serving in the legislature more accessible and bring the voice the voices of more uh, diverse Vermonters into elected office and just wanted to give you the chance before we let you go to give any reflections on that bill. Yeah, thank you. Um, S39, a bill that uh, the entire um, Senate Government Operations Committee um, uh, sponsored and voted for. And we agree. We think it's really important that we have the pay um, sort of range and benefits package that enable everyday Vermonters to serve in the legislature. 
you mentioned that I used to um, be the executive director of Emerge Vermont. So I've tried to recruit and retain women in elected office for a very long time. And it can be a real burden for sort of everyday people to come to the state house and serve, to leave their families, to put in hundreds and hundreds of hours of really difficult and really important work and to be paid so little. We get paid about $14,000 a year to do one of the most important jobs in our state government, which is literally making the laws of our state. And so we really want to make sure that you don't have to be retired or independently wealthy to have this job, that you're able to come and serve, whether you're a young Vermonter, a Vermonter who's a parent, a, a Vermonter who has lived in poverty. Um, we want people, a diverse group of Vermonters to be able to come and serve if they've been elected and to be able to stay long enough to have an impact. It's not supposed to be a career, but it's also not supposed to be a job that only a select few people can do. Um, and we think having um, fair pay um, is um, important. It's also a uh, a constitutional uh, requirement of the office that we are paid fairly um, so that um, more Vermonters can do this work. Um, so many people have left the legislature, not just because of retirements, but because they couldn't sustain their family and support their family while also serving in the legislature. So we want to make sure it's a more accessible job for people um, and more accessible position for people to consider having. And um, that's why we're really, really hopeful that the, the House will take up that bill and pass it this session um, so we can really set the legislature up for the those going into effect next biennium. None of us would get those pay increases. It would be next biennium. So people would have to be reelected or new people would have to be elected before the salary increases went into effect. So um, hopefully House members are listening and will urge their leadership to take up this bill and pass it this session. Yeah, that's great. I think it's one of those issues. If you don't necessarily spend a lot of time at the state house, it, it seems a little... I don't know, just something you wouldn't even think about, but it's as someone who also has tried to recruit people to run and support people, it's it's such a hard thing to ask of people and so many people can't do it right now. So I think it's so important to make sure that our legislature is better reflecting all kinds of Vermonters. So I think it's exciting and I'm glad you all took it up and grateful for it. Um, so thank you so much. Good luck in these final weeks of the session with these and all of your priorities and take care. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Lauren. Nice to chat. And next, Justin will be talking with Representative Emma Mulvaney-Stanick. Representative Emma Mulvaney-Stanick is a progressive representing Burlington. She is the House Progressive Party's caucus leader, which consists of four other House members, Representative Taylor Small, Representative Brian Chena, Representative Kate Logan, and Representative Troy Hedrick. She was elected in 2020 after defeating the Democratic incumbent, Gene O'Sullivan, in the primary. She is a former Burlington City Council member, former chair of the Vermont Progressive Party, and daughter of Ed Stanek, a retired Act 250 district coordinator and former candidate for attorney general. Rep. Mulvaney Stanek has previously led the Vermont Livable Wage Campaign, is a member of the Rainbow Caucus, a mother of two younger children, and a wife. She's taking time from her weekend fittingly to discuss the challenges of serving in the State House 
but also the policy she and her party are advocating for addressing legislative pay. Thank you for joining me, Representative Mulvaney Stanek. Thanks for having me, Justin. I'm excited for this conversation. Yeah. So first things first, I think the fact that we are recording this on a Saturday morning is not only a testament to the wild schedule of legislators, but the fact that being a public servant is often a role that doesn't come with set hours. And when the session adjourns, your constituents still expect to have their their elected officials respond to their queries, attend events, and be a community presence. So tell me a little bit about the legislative policy, uh, legislative pay policy um, that you and others are advocating for. Well, it's a great question to start on. And um, if my wife listens to this podcast, big thank you for letting me do this recording on a Saturday morning after we both have really long work weeks. Uh, Because my wife actually has a really big job as well. And this is a good segue into this conversation around legislator compensation, uh, because it's really difficult to serve in the Vermont legislature. And it has been so for decades for people who don't come with um, economic privilege uh, and have the ability in their in their regular lives, if you will, um, to do things that are, quote, hobby jobs, if you will. And so part of why it's so important that the legislator compensation conversation go forward and S39 specifically is that it's it's about damn time. I like to quote Lizzo often in my work. And actually, when I when I testified on this very bill in Senate government operations, I, I quoted Lizzo. I didn't say her full actual accurate quote. Um, but it's it's really about modernizing our Vermont legislative system. And when people talk about wanting to diversify the body of the House or the Senate to make sure that there are more women, that there are more queer folks, that there are more uh, BIPOC folks, et cetera, um, they often jump over the actual biggest elephant in the room, the biggest barrier for folks, which is economic livelihood um, and economic security. And that looks like having a job that pays you a livable wage. It looks like having a job that offers health insurance, pensions, adequate compensation so you're able to to have a life if, uh, that includes having children or uh, being able to leave your home um, for multiple days in a row, which there's other expenses that come along with that for folks. And so the system we have now is really antiquated. Um, we get paid roughly $14,000 for a salary. Uh, there's a wild assumption that the job just magically ends um, outside of Tuesday through Friday, January to May, which is completely false. Uh, and it also looks over the fact that in this more complex world that we're living in, where policy issues are so complicated, are so emergent, so um, emer- like on an emergency level of crisis on so many levels, that it takes much deeper, complicated thinking to put together policy. And the only time you really can develop adequate policy is off session, where you get to meet with constituents, when you get to meet with um, advocates on the national level, and the, and you meaning the legislator, because we have no staff. We don't have staff who's helping us with research or outreach or um, responding to constituents. And we represent thousands of people um, in any of our districts, whether you're in the House or the Senate. So it's a really massively big job. And most other states do it very differently in terms of compensation. Vermont is in the bottom 10 of states in terms of our total compensation overall. Um, and it is, I, we've been coasting on this, this um, kind of privileged legislature setup, which is um, which really is a disservice to Vermonters because we don't see the average face of Vermonters in that building. And that impacts the quality of decisions that are made. It impacts what gets prioritized. And that's why we've seen no real meaningful action on paid family leave, on labor issues related to working people um, and related to healthcare. I mean, honestly, if we had a very different body uh, and legislator compensation is a huge component. It's a huge foundational block in making sure that we have a legislature that is responsive to what Vermonters are asking us to do. Yeah. And so what would the what would the policy include? So it, it's a incremental increase, correct? So that it's not directly impacting 
the present day lawmakers, it's it's kind of tiered, if I'm understanding correctly. Correct. There are a few components of it. And, and if folks really want to dive into the details, uh, so S39 started as a much stronger bill in Senate government operations. And I had a companion bill, um, H281, which actually Senate uh, government operations took some elements of as we started to look at actually, ironically enough, the pretty small amount of increase it would be compared to when you look at the executive branch and the judicial branch and how much we spend for the staffing and the um, elected people on those two branches of government, we are we are dwarfed. And so uh, they actually realized they could be a little bit more, a little tiny bit more generous in the salary compensation and um, reimbursements for people with child uh, children uh, when they looked at the fiscal analysis of that bill. So if people want to go back, I think that's important because what ultimately passed out of the Senate after Senate appropriations took a look at the bill is is less. It's less than where it started. And so in a nutshell, um, the uh, bill S39, as it got passed by the Senate, it is now in the House, offers all members of the General Assembly eligibility for state the state health insurance plan, uh, which is the same one for state employees, and the cost sharing would be the same. Uh, that would that would actually be available within the first year of this bill um, being enacted. But again, I want to emphasize it's a you know you would elect to be part of the insurance and you pay something for it. It's not 100% premium co- coverage or anything like that. The biggest piece is really around um, the compensation, the salary, and that is phased in so that no current legislator would see an increase in their salary um, unless they got reelected because the sur- first salary increase would start in 2025. And then the Senate appropriations thought, rather than what Senate government operations offered, they thought that it should be phased in over two bienniums, which I disagree with. However, that's the way it got passed. Um, Senate government operations wanted a phase in that started it next biennium. But uh, the Senate appropriations felt that a more gradual increase of a very minimal salary increase should be the way we go. So you, the legislators won't have the full um, the full salary implementation of going up to about twenty eight thousand dollars for the year until twenty twenty seven, which is two election cycles away. There's also a little bit in there around uh, legislator compensation off cycle, meaning when the session ends, about a fifth. Um, it's the equivalent would be a fifth of the salary, so basically one day of, of work a week for off session work to to help compensate people for those things I mentioned before. That's when we do all of our research. We still talk to constituents. Everybody and their mother asks you to go to events pretty much every day of the week. Um, it could really easily be a full-time job, but this this proposal still starts us a good step forward of acknowledging um, what people need in order to do this job well. Yeah. How often do you, you know, you said one day, it's equivalent to one day a week of work on the off session is what you'll, the proposed compensation. But would you say that that's accurate to the actual amount of work that um, that you currently do in the off in the off session? Because I'm a dork, I actually tracked my hours um, off session just to see. I work. I, I'm self-employed outside of the legislature anyway, so I track hours for my client work. And so I really thought because it felt like a lot, and I was feeling, especially as I got into September, October, into December, leading up to the session. I just felt like I was really starting to juggle um, and having to really create some boundaries around my legislative work because it was all unpaid. And yet people wanted to meet. I needed time to, to um, as I said, do a lot of policy development. Even one bill, if you do it well and really think it through, um, it takes a number of hours to really put put together and work with legislative counsel. And this is all work that I, I want to emphasize that is um, best done outside the session because once you hit January, you're deep into your committee work. You are, um, you know, you have many more uh, it, uh, things pulling on your time availability. So to do it well, you really have to do this stuff off session. And so I actually presented that 
tracking the data that I track with my hours to the Senate Government Operations Committee, because I'm a dork again, with bar graphs and everything. Um, and uh, I and I compared my, fir- the, um, my first biennium compared to, uh, sorry, I guess it would be 2020 um, to the pandemic has blurred my brain with years. So it was 20, it would have been t- um, 2021 and 2022, like the off session of those two for my first term. And I had no boundaries around it because it was the height of the pandemic. And I didn't know what, you know, I worked all the time because many people who have small children got into that phase, frankly, around I'll just tag team and I'll sleep less and um, we'll just make it work. And there are no boundaries to when I stop working and start working. The point being, when I looked at my hours, even when I tried to really curb back how much I was spending in the off session with work, uh, because I just needed the time to actually do my paid work with clients. Uh, it was it was shocking. I think on average I was spending um, fifteen easily fifteen hours a week when I was really trying not to work on legislative issues uh, during the off session. So even this one fifth a week piece, which would be roughly what eight hours a week, is pretty minimal. And it's and it assumes that um, that you're also not addressing constituents on the fly or going to events. None of that really I think is um, adequately accounted for that because when I estimated my fifteen hours a week, that was really policy work that I was tracking. One thing that I'm curious of is like where this policy is. And I, is it, my understanding is that um, there's kind of maybe un, unspoken um, sense that this needs to happen soon um, and not in an election year. Um, is that, is that the feeling? Well, it is a little tricky because the Senate, um, we expected the Senate to have passed this before crossover and crossovers, many of your listeners will know, are these deadlines that the Senate and House agree to, to pass policy bills um, by so the other chamber basically has time to act upon it before the end of the session. It's not impossible, though, for policy to still find a path forward once, um, once that deadline has gone. But S39 came several weeks after that crossover deadline, which makes it much harder than, frankly, I think it needed to be. And it puts the house in an awkward position of having trying to find a path forward. So we could, um, we the speaker could basically still put it on the calendar, regardless of the crossover deadlines, as Bill S thirty nine, or we could find another bill to attach it to to make to find a path forward. I think the biggest piece around anything is that uh, you know the legislature makes the rules, and we can find a path forward because fundamentally, what this bill is about is legislating. Uh, uh, adequate and fair compensation for future legislators, not current legislators. This is all about who do we want in this body going forward. And we as policymakers, um, this is a critical part of what I was talking about before, making sure we have a a really reflective um, democracy of people who live in Vermont. And so to me, that's the obligation. So we must find a path forward. And um, when you throw politics in, yeah, when it's a campaign season, which unfortunately is every other year in Vermont. I, we should talk about <laughs> about the lengths of of, uh, of terms because it's this two year cycle that everybody's on. Just means we're pumping way too much money into election cycles that I feel are really unnecessary. We, if we extended the terms just even ever so slightly, we could do better quality work and people could be more focused on policy than constantly campaigning. But that's a conversation for another podcast. Um, but in a campaign cycle year, people are are more visibly out engaging with constituents, and I think. Um, some of us are ready to have that conversation. I, as a woman in particular, and as a queer person with all the gender pay gaps and the queer pay gap and all of that, I'm ready to have that conversation. I've never had a problem asking for what I deserve and what I, um, what I, I fairly should earn because this to me uh, is part of the larger conversation around fair economics and making sure people have fair pay for what they're, they're doing. And as we elect more women and queer people and um, BIPOC people to this body, we're going to contribute to the, the gender and racial wage gaps if we don't start addressing these issues. So to me, I'm boldly 
inviting that conversation. I don't think this is something that legislators should shy away from, be it a campaigner or not, but not everyone shares that opinion. So many people feel politically it's going to be harder for folks who might be in more um, purple districts or perhaps are just more timid about talking about economics, um, which sadly women have been culturally really uh, unfortunately raised around. Um, that's going to be a harder conversation for some people. But my hope is that we help embolden those those folks. We help create a larger dialogue in the state so people know the significance of it all um, and the importance of legislating this policy for future legislators. Yeah, if you were a single, you mentioned your wife at the top of the of the interview. And if, you know, if you were a single parent, do you think that you'd still have the capacity to serve? Hell no, to the no, to the no, to the no. I would not be able to do this. Absolutely not. I've actually thought like in the darkness of the pandemic, I don't think know if any married person didn't think about, is this marriage going to survive? I love you, Megan, just for the record. But in these dark moments, you think like, what, how could I even, frankly, legislator role aside, affording to live in Vermont as a single person is so difficult with the cost of living and everything else. But, um, you know, I would definitely not be able to be a legislator between the pay and lack of access to health insurance. As a self-employed person, there'd be no way that I'd be able to do this job without my wife having a good public sector job, works with City of Burlington with solid health insurance. There's absolutely no way I could do this, especially as a parent of two small children. It would feel like an irresponsible choice, to be honest, because I'm not sure how I would support my kids um, with, with adequate health insurance and however that would be split if we were if I were single um, as a single parent. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, and I, I want to pivot now to to more broadly what some of the Progressive Party priorities um, that you've put forth this year. Um, what looks poised to make it over the finish line and, and what will continue when the session resumes next January? Great. I'd love to talk about that because the Progressive Caucus um, started the biennium with a uh, legislative priority list, if you will, for the two-year cycle, because we do have two years to, to technically get these um, uh, bills across the finish line. And of course, a big question mark is always at the end of the process with our governor, who has a record number of vetoes and what he's going to plan to do with those um, is is to be seen on any of these number of issues. But so the progressives really, we've always been a party around economic justice and economic dignity. So that is one of our core areas. We have been watching a couple of issues that fall under that around um, housing policy and worker policy, so working families in particular. And so we've been watching the paid family leave bill and very curious. We were proud to be um, one of 100 plus sponsors at the end of H66, which was the House version of the paid family leave bill. I'll go over to the Senate. But we, that will really, that piece will, um, I think, unfortunately, is, is headed towards a collision course with childcare, given what the Senate has set up. And so that is um, a really unfortunate example, I think, of how especially working people's issues get forced into this zero-sum policymaking framework where we can only do one thing. Um, we can't walk and chew gum at the same time. And we play right into this um, false narrative that the governor set up around affordability, when in reality, working people have been holding the expense of navigating childcare and paid family leave um, or lack thereof for years. And so the, somebody is bearing the brunt of this cost right now and is working people of Vermont. And so unfortunately with this framing, um, what gets, gets lost in the shuffle is that if we can do these bold pieces of policies, this will actually balance out the economics of what working people are solely bearing the brunt of right now. And so that's why progressives are so committed to making sure that a, a, a robust and, and fully um, and vibrant childcare policy and paid family leave get across the finish line because they're important uh, intersectional policies in our mind. Um, the second piece around economic de dignity is that we really want to see meaningful labor bills passed. There really hasn't been 
action on um, labor bills in uh, at least a handful of years in the legislature. And so what that looks like are things like the, we've, we've coined the, the labor bill, the PRO Act, which stands for protecting the right to organize, which is a mimic, mimicking of a federal bill. But there's some um, important components in there to make the organizing process for unions easier uh, for Vermonters who are in public sector jobs. Um, it also includes a, includes a very important piece of banning what's called captive audience meetings, which in these political times, um, it, usually these are meetings uh, required by the employer for their employees to attend. Um, and if you don't attend, you can get reprimanded or um, in this case at an at-will state, you could get even fired for, for um, refusing to attend these meetings. They've in the past been used to basically bash unions if, a, if groups of workers are trying to organize a union at that workplace. But they've now been started to be used for political reasons, uh, for religious reasons, to just pontificate as the employer about whatever their beliefs are. And employees have to sit there and just receive it, um, regardless of free speech. So this is an important and I think very timely component of the PRO Act. Um, and the final piece that made it across from the Senate was around allowing agriculture and domestic workers the right to organize, which we can do under state law because it's silent under federal law. And these folks are some of the lowest paid and most exploited workers in our economy. So um, that's just one bill, one example. There's a few other labor bills, but we really would like to see something meaningful put forward about workers' rights, either minimum wage or um, issues related to um, uh, just workplace justice. On a good, on a positive note, and it, it hasn't passed yet, so I don't want to um, uh, jinx it in any kind of way, but S-103 is a bill that does address place, issues of workplace discrimination and housing discrimination for that matter and harassment. And so there's some really strong, important language in there. And they also included um, updating the equal pay portion of our state statute. And that is a bill that we, as the progressives, we've also been supporting a version of this around expanding the protected categories for that uh, someone could place an equal pay, uh, equal pay claim under. Right now, it's just sex. It hadn't been touched for 20 years. And sex, of course, is based on the gender binary and is an antiquated way of looking at even just if you're looking at gender identity of, of what comes up in workplaces and the justifications that employers can use to pay someone differently. Right. And so um, I mean, we're excited about S-103. Um, because it added racial uh, racial um, identity, it added national origin, and until just last week, until progressives intervened, frankly, it did not include gender identity or sexual orientation. And so we pushed back, and while in committee, and the bill got better, and those added categories were added, um, which again is so important in this climate where there's so um, so much transphobia. Um, and homophobia and just literally systematic uh, um, efforts to not only erase people who hold those identities, but treat them as other and differently. And so this is a good, bold move in, in uh, Vermont, and I'm hoping it passes the finish line by the end of the session. So S-103 could at least be a good good piece of labor bill. Yeah, well, the finish line is near, <laughs> hopefully, right? <laughs> I feel like it's been quite the marathon. Um, and I just in closing, I, I asked a similar question when I interviewed Representative Sadia Lamont several episodes back. Uh, what advice would you have for someone with your shared identities if they're considering running for office? Well, I, I am always trying to find a path to help someone say yes to it. But I'm also very realistic about the barriers that are still there to make the, as I've talked earlier around the economics work, but we haven't even talked in this um, conversation yet around the other the other uh, realities around sexism, homophobia, racism. They all exist because our state legislature is simply just an extension of the culture and this and the communities that we're coming from, right? And a lot of that has been um, not adequately addressed quite yet in the legislature. And so we're really some of us um, just by our mere presence are disrupting that um, 
that reality. I serve on House Commerce and Economic Development, which is a committee you would not imagine that a lot of issues of equity or identity, et cetera, come up. But frankly, when you look at any piece of bill that we're talking about, it comes up all the time if you're actually looking at it from the lens of who is being left out, what is um, gender binary language that's being used, what is racist language being used, where are we not even intentionally addressing um, the uh, the marginalization of people with certain identities and how we can ma- use this piece of policy to leverage to make it better. And so I've I've actually been quite surprised how frequently it comes up even in my committee. Um, and and just the mere presence of at least me being there as a queer woman voicing these things and trying to be an ally also, of course, for the BIPOC community and, and other folks whose identities I don't share, even my mere presence has been able to change policy. And there's so many examples of it, of just using... Um, respectful language, updating provisions of law that might feel really minor, but right now technically create um, a, uh, a separate but equal kind of construct or just frankly no access to a particular benefit because um, the, of the way that that old state statute law is written. So it really matters to get people in, in not only in the room, but at, in the seats that make the decisions. A- and we need to do better to support folks so they're able, that we're able to um, stay in these positions because it is a brutal, it's a brutal time to be an elected leader anywhere. Um, there are a lot of attacks and we can't sugarcoat it either. And we can't, but we also can't set people up with help them in their campaigns and say, you're elected, yay, high fives all around and then disappear on them because that actually creates the most hostile and harmful environment for people where um, then folks get harmed. They're there by themselves. As I mentioned before, we have no staff, there is no buffer and we're in it on our, on our own. And so Creating community is critically important and creating active allies. And I use that word very specifically, active allies, rather than passive allies, because, um, you know, Vermont has this this fake progressive bubble around it, small p, where everyone thinks because, you know, we're not Texas and we don't have these awful laws that are actually advancing in any way, shape or form in Vermont, that we are um, somehow immune or um, from these acts of um, homophobia or racism, et cetera. And we're absolutely, that's not the case. So active allyship means speaking up when a transphobic bill gets introduced, which did happen here in Vermont, H513. Trigger warning, don't go read it. It's, but just know it's transphobic. And we need people though, to stand up and say so and, 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 and be a visible voice and an active voice so that folks who hold those identities don't have to constantly be the ones raising the alarm or speaking that there's harm being done, et cetera. So that is the next frontier for the Vermont legislature to make sure that we have more active allies and we're making room and protecting the space for people with um, uh, marginalized identities or intersectional um, identities as well, which makes that job even harder. So you would say yes, but with a big (laughs) asterisk. Yeah, was that asterisk big enough? Because that was probably like a 20-minute rant about like, yes, and this is all the ways we have to do better to support you so that you know what you're walking into at the same time. Yeah, I mean, I'm a realist. I get it. And I appreciate that. Yeah, I think think people need to realize is that a lot of folks, you're still going to be the first or maybe second person to hold that identity in this state, which is not only a big celebratory, big fucking deal, frankly, but it's also a big scary deal in the times that we're, we're living in um, when it is so easy to um, uh, find people, isolate them, attack them, et cetera. Um, and that's, again, why I think it's so important to underscore the, the role of allyship. And so we need um, everyone in that building who believes that, yes, it is an important thing to have queer people and trans folks and Black folks, et cetera, serve. So what does that mean? Like, what's your role to make sure that they stay safe and that they can, can you know, be here to do this job and, and do it well? Yeah, absolutely.
Well, thank you so much for your work and your advocacy. And of course, for taking the time to talk to VCV and our listeners. And I hope you are able to enjoy the rest of your weekend and you don't have to do too much more work. (laughs) Oh, well, that's a lie. Yes, it's the last two weeks of the session. So there'll be a whole lot of legislative work, but it's more like I'm looking forward to the end of May because then then it'll, it'll be a little bit better. But Justin, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate the invitation. Yeah, take care. Thank you. Thanks. Now it's time for our stat of the week. 11. That is the number of renters among the entire Vermont General Assembly. Of those 11, three are members of the Progressive Caucus. Meanwhile, 35 members are or have been landlords, property managers, or realtors, including a third of the Senate body, which only includes two renters. This is thanks to recent data analysis by Vermont Digger. I want to thank our guests, Representative Emma Mulvaney-Stanek, Senator Ruth Hardy, and of course, Lauren Hurl, for assisting me. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe and give us a rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. Be sure to follow us on social media. On Twitter, we are at VoteGreenVT, YouTube and Instagram at VT Conservation Voters, and find us on Facebook as well. You can subscribe to our emails, see our legislative environmental scorecard, and learn more about our work and policies by visiting VermontConservationVoters.org. We will be back next week with an episode live from the 2023 Annual Conservation Voters Conference in Minnesota. Until then, thanks for listening.